When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. And today on Hopping Mad, we have an interview with Justin Santo Pietro, who is running for Congress in Virginia 9. And he gave us a really exciting and interesting interview. He's a really, I think, rather remarkable candidate. And I know that you're really going to enjoy this interview. But first, Will has an update on the hurricane damage in Florida. And of course, we're going to talk about Brexit because you're hopping mad and dang if they haven't screwed it up over there again. But before we get to that, I wanted to let you know that because I am involved in rabbit rescue, I am taking care of a really ill rabbit right now. And so if you hear a funny noise, it's because she has to be within an arm's reach of me in case she has a little bunny crisis so if you hear any little funny kind of snuffly noises that's what's going on will i am so glad to be back after my two-week break in florida and i'm just really happy that nothing of any significance has happened in the last two weeks (laughs) not a thing (laughs) not Not a a thing not not multiple stories per day over the past two weeks, uh, oh my gosh, there's so much net neutrality. The the continued Me Too movement, which we need to talk about in a future show. There's we lost a so senator. Much. We lost a couple congressmen. Uh, and and not to mention everything that's going on in the rest of the world. While we're focusing on the fact that uh, our politicians can't seem to uh, behave themselves, but. Leaving all that for future shows where we will have time to cover this, I hope, but I really, really worry that things are going to continue to go wrong and won't be able to. Leaving all that aside, I want to talk about uh, Florida and the hurricanes and the things that I've saw, I've seen and the people that I've talked to. And first, I want to talk about Puerto Rico. Uh, Arliss encouraged me to reach out to some of the members of the Puerto Rican community in Florida because there are a lot of really amazing organizations that do work and have contacts on the islands. And I am trying right now to find somebody that we can bring on to do an interview with. I haven't found someone yet. If you're listening to this and know somebody, please direct them to us. We'd be happy to talk to them. But at this stage, the really worrying thing is I kept hearing the same thing from, from people working with Puerto Ricans, and that's that there's no good information that they feel like the government is covering up the information on how many people have died and how many people are being affected by this and how many people are dying because of the mismanagement of the recovery and the mismanagement of the disaster relief. And Rachel Maddow has actually done some really great reporting on this, which she didn't call a cover-up, but which looks a lot like a cover-up, where they're not releasing numbers of deaths or they're trying to downplay the numbers of deaths. We have stories of people drinking contaminated water. We have stories of people dying uh, of malnutrition. We have a lot of horrific stories that I have kept hearing about Puerto Rico. So I'm going to do what I can to get to the bottom of that and bring our listeners good information when we have it. But the situation there is still very, very bad. And unfortunately, there still hasn't been Uh, enough reporting on that. So we're going to do what we can to address that moving forward. But looking at what happened in Florida, I saw a lot of hurricane damage starting in North Florida, where you saw typical hurricane tree damage, where trees had fallen in neighborhoods. Uh, One of of my parents' neighbors had their garage cut in half and lost their entire garage. uh, And a number of other houses had trees fall and a couple houses in the in the neighborhood are going to need new roofs. And that's in North Florida, hundreds of miles away from where it first made landfall in the continental United States, which was in the Florida Keys. I also got down to see the Florida Keys and all the damage there. And the whole drive down, it was just storm debris on the sides, destroyed mobile homes, uh, lots that used to have buildings that don't anymore. And and there's so much I could say about this, but the thing I think I want to focus on is sort of the economy of the Florida Keys and a group of people that have not really been talked about as much as they need to, which is the working class of the Florida Keys. If you want to have your your store to have staff in it, if you want 
um, people to sell food at grocery stores or to man a gas station in the Keys, you need people who are doing working class jobs. And the people doing those jobs in the Keys have a couple of choices. They can either live in trailer parks on these islands or they can live in Florida City and commute uh, an hour and a half, two hours each way. So three to four hours of a commute to do a working class job every day. Unsurprisingly, most of these folks choose to live in trailer parks. And these trailer parks were completely and totally devastated by the hurricane that rolled through. And the really horrific piece of information that I found about this is if you live in a house, it's kind of easy to get homeowners insurance. If you live in one of the apartment buildings on the islands, which are few and far between, it's also easy to get renter's insurance for, you know, 50 bucks a, a month, if that. It's, it's usually 10 to $20 a month. It's not expensive. But if you look at what it costs to insure a trailer or a mobile home in these trailer park communities in, in the Florida Keys, it's about $2,000 a year, which if you're working minimum wage, you can't afford. And even if you do find some way to afford the $2,000 a year, they don't even cover half of the cost of replacing your home if it's destroyed. So these working class communities upon which the entire Florida Keys depend have been totally devastated by this storm. There's one story I heard in, in the Washington, uh, sorry, in the Miami Herald of these guys who tried to ride out the storm in one of their trailers and the trailer came around, came apart around them and they ended up surviving by clinging to a telephone pole. This, these communities have not received the pre-storm services they needed to get to shelter properly. And after the storm, very literal is being done to help them. And as we know, Trump is cutting FEMA staff. So it's, it's a really bad situation down there. And the people who've been hurt the most by the storm aren't getting the help they need. I'm going to try to follow up on this story. But from what I've seen, things are really, really bad right now. So that's the situation and, in Florida. And that's what we can see stateside. So take that and multiply it, you know, by a factor yeah. of, you know, a bazillion for Puerto Rico, I'm sure. Exactly. Think about how bad things are stateside here in the Keys. And I can't even manage, imagine right now what's going on in Puerto Rico, yeah. which, is, which is something that we do need to continue to cover. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. You know, so much has gone wrong with Brexit in the past few weeks that it's really hard to know where to start. So I guess I'll start with Damien Green and the thousands of thumbnails of pornography that were found on his work computer at Westminster in Parliament. <laughs> and I know that sounds like a weird oh place gosh. to start, but bear with me for a moment. Uh, it was found by the police in 2008 when they investigated him for legal wrongdoing that we don't have time to get into. And a former police detective revealed this story to the press this week. Damien Green is a cabinet minister in Theresa May's government and best friends politically and probably personally with David Davis, who is the cabinet secretary for Brexit. That's relevant because David Davis has said that if Damien Green gets the axe for his incredibly inappropriate behavior, then David Davis is resigning. So this all happened before the current destruction. Before the current problems, Theresa May's government is already teetering on the brink of total collapse. That was where she was before everything went wrong with the Irish border. So lose, I mean, does losing one minister a total collapse make, or I, su I suspect there's more to that statement. You might want to let folks it, know. It does total collapse make because uh, Damien Green and David Davis are sort of Theresa May's close backers who are defending them from Jason, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the hard Brexit guys who really do want a no-deal Brexit because they really do lust for the time of the British Empire. And they like they like singing Land of Hope and Glory, especially that line about uh, uh, God who made the mighty make the mightier yet and the British Empire is bounds ever increasing. So these people are the people who are protecting Theresa May. 
from the rest of the Tories. Their political heavyweight stuff is what is keeping her in office and and keeping the Tory party together, even though Theresa May is making concessions that people like Jacob Rees-Mogg would otherwise like them not to make. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg is sort of the erudite version of Nigel Farage. Um, he's a man with the the personal style of the 1930s and a moral compass from the 1390s. I was going to say, is, I'm glad I'm glad to know that you think that there can be an erudite version of Nigel Farage. Yeah, it, it, to the extent that, that it's possible to be erudite about that. He, he thinks of himself as a real man of the people while wearing what I assume are $2,000 glasses. And and the man uh, is is one of the genu- genuinely horrific uh, politicians out there. He he puts this kind of folksy upper class British face on really 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 far right authoritarian politics. Uh, he's one of the people who really would like to force the gays to go to camps. If you look at his politics and the things that he has said, uh, it seems that way anyway from the statements that he's made. He really does not like LGBT folks. He really does not like women. And uh, that has kind of set him at odds with the current prime minister for obvious reasons, in addition to the fact that he wants hard, 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 hardest possible Brexit. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is sort of the leader of the backbench Tories who want the most catastrophic deal possible ideologically. And following on this, so you got Jacob Rees-Mogg on one side. Uh, David Davis is now in trouble and people are calling for him to be held in contempt of parliament because he has been saying that the UK government did an impact assessment to, to try to tell what kind of damage would be done to the UK by Brexit. And now he's saying that they didn't actually do an impact assessment, possibly for fear that if they knew how much damage this would do, they might not be able to take it forward. So he has been lying to parliament and journalists for months and we're not sure what he's been lying about. Either the impact assessment was done and it's so bad that he doesn't want people to know about it. Or he's been lying to journalists for months and uh, the the impact assessment wasn't done at all. So things are bad. And they got even worse this last week or the week before last, I guess, with the Irish border. Now, as Arliss and I have mentioned several times on this program, the Good Friday Agreement creates treaty obligations to the UK to keep Northern Ireland in the European Union and to offer access to the European Court of Justice. This was an important step for peace because people did not trust the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which is now Police Service Northern Ireland, because the RUC was cooperating with Protestant terrorists. And so was the UK government. So there are reasons that people don't trust UK courts, UK government and UK police and that peace is assured by offering them access to the ECJ. That is called into question by Brexit. And despite the fact that the DUP sort of runs things in Northern Ireland at the moment as as the largest party, uh, even though they got like 30 percent of the vote. The current polling shows that, you know, the 70 percent of people in Northern Ireland who didn't vote for the for the DUP want to remain in the EU. They want a special status for Ireland. Well, they don't want special status for Ireland. They want to remain in the EU. 60 percent of people want special status for Ireland. And now if they can't have special status, if they can't remain in the EU, 47 percent of people in Northern Ireland want Irish reunification to protect Irish citizen rights as far as it relates to the EU against 45% who don't. So Irish reunification is now polling in the positive for the first time in recent memory or perhaps ever, which is terrifying the unionist community in and outside of Ireland. All this talk of special status, of course, has gotten the Scottish very, very interested because what the Scots are now saying is, well, if you can provide special status to Northern Ireland, surely you could provide special status to Scotland as well. If you can do it for one part of the UK, there's no barrier to doing it for another part of the UK. Oh, and by the way, now that you've said that uh, Brexit means that there won't be a hard border between the UK and Northern Ireland or Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, sure, surely that would mean that Scottish independence 
would mean no hard border between Scotland and the United Kingdom. So that is developing as well. Now, this deal that Theresa May tried to make almost fell apart in two ways. Um, And the deal that has been made now doesn't quite fix the problems. But let's start with the deal she tried to make. She went to Brussels, uh, creating a deal that would provide special status for Northern Ireland and didn't tell the DUP she was going to do this. She just sat down, decided it would be so, and then called the DUP on the phone and tried to get them to agree to a, a deal that they hadn't read. They were a bit upset by this, as you might imagine they would be, especially when the deal provided for a difference between the UK and Northern Ireland, which as radical unionists is something they don't want. Now, it appears that Theresa May tried to pressure them into accepting this deal because they would be blamed if the deal fell apart. But what she forgot is that they're the DUP. They're the political wing of the Old Testament, which means they have a murder complex and they (laughs) like being blamed for things. So I I don't know how she thought that was going to work. And and a part of me is thinking, and this is a bit tinfoil, so I, I, I don't really put much stock in this particular thought i'm worried i'm starting to wonder whether or not Teresa may wants this to work at all i i think she may be looking for an exit ramp that is i'm gonna blame someone else for this when it all blows up and that someone is gonna be the dup i, I don't think she's playing to win the game i think she's playing to avoid the ga- blame or you know that that would imply that she had some kind of sense of what she was doing which doesn't appear to be the case that that's being credible well, that's that's being uh, uh, too charitable to her and her intelligence and competence at this point, I think. Um, she flew back to London with her tail between her legs and tried to meet with the DUP on Tuesday. And the DUP refused to meet with her. Uh, the DUP refused to meet with the prime minister of the UK when she asked to meet with them because they were so angry about this deal. And so after a week of the pound and free fall relatively and British stocks down and total political and economic chaos. And uh, meanwhile, there's the porn thing with Damien Green and now David Davis being threatened with contempt of parliament and all of that chaos. In the midst of that, she agrees to change the language from to, to say that there will be no new regulatory barriers between the UK and Northern Ireland. Now, this doesn't actually mean anything and doesn't actually change the, the earlier stance, which was regulatory alignment. Now, what the Jacob Rees-Mogg faction is worried about is that regulatory alignment means that you still agree to be part of all the EU rules, right. which is what they want to get rid of. So if you have regulatory alignment for Northern Ireland and no difference between Northern Ireland and the UK, that means the rest of the UK is still in the EU, basically, which is not something that Jacob Rees-Mogg and his guys want. So here's the thing. It's not possible to make both the DUP and the Jacob Rees-Moggs of the world happy. There's no way to do this and still fulfill, fulfill the treaty obligations to the Good Friday Agreement and still fulfill their agreements that they have now made with the EU about making sure there's no hard border in Ireland. This is just a a, a, a square that can't fit. It's a square peg that can't fit in a round hole. It won't work. There is no way to do this legally. It is it is an impossibility. And the DUP recognizes this, saying, "Okay, fine. We'll agree in principle to the idea." that there will be no new regulatory barriers between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But, Teresa, if this is just a fudge on your part, we're voting against the Brexit bill. So the DUP is promising that if Theresa May can't do the impossible, they're going to bring down her government and they're going to vote against the Brexit bill, which, again, would mean the collapse of her government. Which is what we talked about when the election happened and the DUP yeah. basically picked up those few, that handful of powerful seats. They were in that position to use that leverage. And that's why this is a problem. Elections have consequences. Yeah. And I'm just, uh, uh, Arliss, could I say I am just shocked, shocked 
Shocked, political, I say. Yeah, that the political wing of the Old Testament would have a tendency towards intransigence. No. That's just, that's just so shocking to me that the DUP is threatening to burn the country down for the sake of their very backwards views. I mean, who could have imagined that this would happen? Except for us and everyone else who was talking about this exact situation after the election. That's right. Everyone who was paying attention. Yeah. Everybody. And and it's happened now. And I'm just so worried about the people in the UK. Like, I, I literally, the blood drained out of my face when David Davis said that there hadn't been an impact assessment. They, they, I am so worried about everybody that lives in the UK right now. Because you should explain that to people because that was, I, I mean, I actually laughed out loud when I saw that because it sounded exactly like something the Trump administration would do. Uh, so an impact assessment is basically in order to negotiate, we need to know what's going to happen so that we know how to protect our people. We need to know what the economic damage is going to be so that we can protect against that damage and do the mitigation so we can make sure that this isn't a total disaster. The only way to guarantee that you don't damage your economy is to ask the question about what damage is going to be done. They didn't ask the question. So they have no idea what to negotiate for because they haven't looked for what to negotiate for. And they told people they had asked the question. They told people that they were doing this work, only they didn't. They didn't. Or they did, and it's so bad that they're lying about it. Yeah, well, that's that could equally equally well be the case. Which is what one of the journalists who did a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests is saying. He thinks that the impact assessment is, has been done, but it's so very bad that they don't want to release it because they think the government will collapse. Hmm. And that the anti-Brexit Tories will revolt and bring down Theresa May's government to stop Brexit. So what's Nicola Sturgeon saying during during all of this, the the leader of the Scottish contingent? Please, will you talk to us and maybe we can stay in the <laughs> EU, which will avoid all of these problems. And by the way, if you don't talk to us and you don't keep us in the EU, we're going to talk about a second indie ref. Because remember, OK, in the UK, you have manifesto commitments and one of the most it's actually has legal status and precedent. A manifesto commitment is something that is assumed to be the will of the people if a government is elected with a manifesto commitment. And the SNP was elected with a manifesto commitment to hold a second independent re independence referendum if there was a material state change in circumstances such as, and I'm quoting directly from their manifesto here, us being taken out of the EU against our will. The folks, when they talk about a manifesto in the UK, it's not like, you know, the Unabomber issuing a manifesto. It's actually something they put out during the process of an election. And they are, unlike our platforms, they actually make a legal commitment to these yeah. particular issues. Yeah, they have a legal commitment to their platforms. It would be nice if our parties did that. It, it would be really nice if we started giving our platforms the same uh, foundation that, that UK manifestos have. That would be nice. I don't know how we would do that, but but it's it's actually really important. It's not just words on a page. This stuff actually matters to them. So, you know, uh, Tur Nicola Sturgeon can't actually back down from holding a second independence referendum unless there is a special status for Scotland. That's not a political po possibility. She has no choice but to call a second independence referendum unless something is done for Scotland. And by the way, that is mentioned in the EU impact assessment on Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, because the EU did an impact assessment on this one. And because uh, they actually yeah. have some competent people. Jean-Claude Juncker is, is no fool in that regard. There are days when I think he is, but he's he made sure that his team did the homework. Yeah. So... I don't know. I, I have no idea what Theresa May is going to do. I, I would I if I were her, I would resign and spend time running through fields of wheat as her um, uh, to, to explain to our listeners. She was once asked what the naughtiest thing she'd ever done was. And she said, I don't know. Running through fields of wheat. I think the farmers didn't appreciate it. I'm, OK, I'm, I, I, have, <laughs> I promise you it was a funny joke. But then I remembered that that, uh, you know. <laughs> it's nothing Americans have heard about. So. That's right. Anyway. It's a mess, people. It's a mess. And <laughs> nobody knows what's going to happen. 
And, and But I know what's going to happen because <laughs> up next on Hopping Mad, we have an amazing interview with Justin Santo Pietro, who's running for Congress in Virginia 9, here on Netroots Radio. We're back on Hopping Mad, and today we're so excited to have with us Justin Santo Pietro. Justin was born and raised in southwestern Virginia, and he's running for Congress in the Virginia 9th. After high school, he moved to Washington, D.C., where he attended university, worked on the Hill for a Democratic senator, worked at the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, which is near and dear to us here at Hopping Mad, and he also worked for Credit Union Association. Now he's running for Congress in his beloved West, in his beloved Virginia home. Welcome, Justin. Hi, guys. So why are you running for Congress? I guess that's always the first question, right? Yeah, I'm running for Congress in 2018 because the country that we live in, and especially my area, Southwest Virginia, Appalachia, is just running out of time to correct course. We have this generation of politicians who've been there for decades. They have the same relative plans, the same ideology, the same uh, uh, approach towards government that has just failed us. And it's I simply don't think that continuing on with this current crop of politicians can give us the turnaround that with this country absolutely needs and frankly deserves. Um, as you guys frequently talk about, there are so many policy issues that are just uh, so bad and so dysfunctional that we could work on. But what we're really up against is is something much larger than that. I, I feel like this has been uh, we have the misfortune of standing here at the tail end of this 40-year right-wing project to really transform the federal government especially, but government in general, so it doesn't actually work for the majority of its citizens. We have a crisis of democracy where voter turnout is terrible. People are being disenfranchised like crazy. Um, we, we, it, it's, so it's so very, very difficult to get anything positive through the Congress. And, and I want to stress that that's not an accident. This is the deliberate goal of this right-wing project. This is what they want. They right. want a government that can't respond to its citizenry and only works for um, a certain group of people, like FDR said, uh, who consider the government a mere appendage to their own affairs. And unfortunately, that's where we are right now. Now, you were born out in the Ninth District and have lived there all your life, so you've mm -hmm. seen a lot of changes. And I just kind of want to set the stage and tell our listeners a little bit about that. I, I know the last Democrat out there was Rick Boucher. And I actually volunteered for Rick Boucher when I was living in this district in his last uh, campaign uh, when he lost to Morgan Griffiths. And the thing that, that people tend to say about rural areas, which I think isn't particularly advisable, is that they're ruby red. But that's not true. This is a purple area. It has mm -hmm. voted for Democrats. It, ha it has uh, had rather strong representation by Democrats historically and even very recently. And that has been because, uh, and well, let me ask you that question. I, I've, I've generally said that's because of an economic message. Do you think mm -hmm. that's true? And what would be your economic message about how to address the really brutal poverty that exists out in these spaces? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. If, if you can stick to an, a bread and butter economic message, that is the way to be successful in a place like Southwest Virginia. And I like to sort of dive into our history a little bit uh, to explain this to folks, because Appalachia, especially as you go west of, say, Roanoke or Lynchburg, is a distinct cultural area. It, it's certainly part of the South, but it is not like other parts of the South because of our, uh, you know, going back to the geography, the mountainous terrain here. The English settlers and planters never came out this way. So that whole culture of uh, plantation culture and uh, really an aristocracy that uh, influenced and created the government never took root in southwest Virginia as strong as it did even in central Virginia or eastern Virginia or northern Virginia, which used to be actually very conservative areas. And, of course, the reason why West Virginia is a different state entirely is because the people there uh, during the 1860s said, hey, we have nothing in common with these people in Richmond. We have no stake in slavery. So they said, we're going to break off 
and uh, make our own state and, and stay in the union. And so that sentiment has still been there. It's very much a, um, you know, as people say here, the fighting ninth, because the folks who settled here were the ones who were rejected by the English settlers. Who they wouldn't, the English wouldn't let them uh, live alongside them in other parts of Virginia. So they sort of got chased out to the mountains, and they had to to make their way and and make their life out here. And so there's uh, absolutely more of a populist, uh, anti-establishment, a uh, strain of political culture here that uh, that you know ebbs and flows. But um, you know, I like to say that um, in Pat, uh, in the 1960s. We had a congressman here, Democratic congressman named Pat Jennings, and believe it or not, he was the only Democrat from the Virginia delegation in Congress to vote in favor of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, something that the Democratic Party in the South, I mean, viscerally opposed. But he was a Democrat that voted for it, and he was actually only one of two Democrats from Virginia delegation to vote for the creation of Medicare, one of the most transformative and progressive programs ever created. So that's the legacy of Southwest Virginia that I think sometimes is forgotten by the national level. And then, of course, we had Rick Boucher for uh, 14 terms, a, a solid Democrat who got reelected because he he was able to carry out his mission as a representative, as someone who brought the money home, who helped build projects in Southwest Virginia, and who had tremendous constituent service, right? He was the sort of quintessential public servant, and people still remember that. Yeah, I still remember that, and uh, from living out there, I I met Rick Boucher several times, and he's, he mm -hmm. was a really great representative. And one of the things that I've, I've told people is that when he came into office in, I think it was the 80s, mm -hmm. there were still some towns out there without running water. And yep. as you said in the, in the pre-interview, infrastructure issues are still really bad out there. Yeah, yeah. We have, uh, I mean, it, it's, the, the funny thing is that uh, Southwest Virginia really is, is only about four hours away from Washington, D.C., or at least it could be, but it's, it's so hard to get here physically uh, if you're driving because there's, there's very few direct roads. A lot of the roads are very windy, and so you can't go very quickly. Um, and, and in terms of uh, modern uh, Internet infrastructure, it's almost even worse. We have folks... Uh, who I've talked to on this campaign who still only have uh, dial-up internet at their house because they're just using the, uh, the the telephone wire for internet. And, of course, that makes it very difficult to do online banking, to do any, you know, sign up for the ACA exchanges, to uh, read my website, uh, to and certainly makes it next to impossible to uh, become part of the modern workforce, which a lot of people now, they work remotely, right? They work from home. Um, but in order to do that, you need to have the ability to have Skype calls, video calls, um, uh, log into a, a VPN of your employer, that sort of thing. And it just keeps us, so, it, it makes us so uncompetitive in this modern economy. And Rick Boucher understood that and his sort of legacy was trying to make Southwest Virginia one of the uh, more modern areas of the country when it came to internet. And he did that when he was in Congress. Uh, my town here at Blacksburg was actually called the, like the first uh, internet village in the country uh, back in the 90s. Now, unfortunately, yeah. his legacy has not been continued by his his do nothing, uh, careless successor. And so, over the past ten years, we simply haven't kept up as you know internet speeds have doubled or tripled, and uh, the usage of the internet has has been uh, just you know, in, in my lifetime, on cell phones has has changed dramatically. So now we're still way behind, and and we absolutely need a massive. I'm, I'm talking massive infrastructure projects here to bring us back. Yeah, and when when Boucher left office, he was working on some of those telecom deals mm -hmm. to to try to get internet access out there. And it's infuriating to me because absolutely Morgan Griffith has done nothing to address that. And I'm just so frustrated that it's almost ten years later and yep. nothing has been done. Nothing. Yeah. So, Justin, on your website, you have this very strong focus, and I think it's well placed on jobs, healthcare, education, and the environment. Mm -hmm. And or as in fact, and I love on your site that you really don't talk about it in terms of environmental issues like Californians talk about environmental issues. Right. You talk about it in terms of people interacting with the wilderness mm -hmm. and people interacting with the land around them, which I think is incredibly appropriate in your district and 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 is the way people think about it in right. rural areas. I live in a rural area. I've always lived in rural areas. And that's how we think about the space mm -hmm. around us. Mm -hmm. But. 
um, to get to to start with jobs and to start with your take on jobs, the neoliberal economists and I should we should tell listeners that I met you at the MMT, the Modern Monetary Theory Conference, this past yep. summer. So yep. you are not a neoliberal economist proper. Nope. <laughs> um, but neoliberal economists. Uh, have been telling the world in recent months that we're at full employment. I suspect that would come as a surprise to Southwestern Virginia. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you plan to help? It's not just what you hope to do there that matters. How do you plan to connect Washington DC with what's really going on? In other words, yeah, well, how do you communicate that? Well, yeah. So as a larger issue, one of the sort of things I picked up in my time in Washington is there's this overemphasis on analysis and quantification of things. And that's almost seen as the only appropriate way to go about making public policy, even though for the vast majority of our country's history, we really didn't have, uh, you know, micro or macroeconomics. We didn't have a ton of data that policymakers worked on. They made policy because they thought it was the right thing to do. And they did it because it's what their constituents told them to do. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. After all, that's basically the entire message of our Constitution. Our government is set up to reflect the needs of its citizens. And it's not necessarily supposed to be obsessed with GDP or unemployment numbers or inflation or any of these things. And because of that obsessive quantification, it really leaves behind people in rural areas like my district who uh, have a sense of what the government should be doing but they aren't able to necessarily uh, make that pitch in a way that the you know the walks or the analysts will understand because they don't like emotional appeals or or uh, moral appeals to how government should work. And so, from my in my point of view, uh, we just look at it in basic equity, fairness. Uh, Appalachia has has sacrificed tremendously for the gain of uh, urban America, of the big cities on the East Coast that have consumed the coal that our, our folks out here digged out for generations and they never got the they never got to see the the actual gains from the wealth that they produced, the the sacrifices they made in terms of their own health, their families, the stability of their communities, uh just was never uh really reflected uh, into the extent it should be. So my sort of approach is to say, look, uh, urban America has done very well, is doing very well. Southwest Virginia and Appalachia especially needs to get its fair share back. It, it may be 30, 40 years since it's really been that way, but it, it's never too late for Southwest Virginia to get what it deserves. And it deserves, I think, uh, ex, uh, exponentially a massive investment of uh, federal, uh, federal funding and federal support to uh, just bring us back to, um, you know, a relative prosperity because – uh, as we see, you know, the unemployment rate here, the poverty rates here are, you know, oftentimes 50 percent higher than the national average. And that, to me, is totally unacceptable. Right. Now, you have on your website, you talk about infrastructure in two different ways. You talk about infrastructure like the rest of us do in terms of, wow, we need it and that would be great jobs. But you talk about it very specifically in terms of these are the kinds of jobs that the people in my district already know how to do. Exactly. So would you share that with folks? Yeah. So one of the things that always bugged me is this idea that, oh, our America's workforce, they're not ready for the jobs that are there. They need to be retrained. We need to send them to school and they need to get a lot of debt just to keep up with the economy. And these people aren't, they're not good enough. And I just always rejected that idea, A, because I know it's not true, and B, because it talks down to people. It says, you know, if you're 40 or 50 years old, it's basically saying you're useless, you can't contribute you know, there's nothing for you in this economy. And that's total nonsense. So like you said, I focus on saying, look, we can employ people where they live doing the things that they already know how to do. And it's not that it's really not that complicated if we can get this, you know, the political and the supposed financial barriers out of our heads, because this is how uh, it, it, it sort of gives people a sense of dignity to say, hey, you already you know how to work hard. You know how to you know, work with your body. You like that sense of a physical work and accomplishment that you get at the end of the day. We can deploy that for the good of you, your family, your community, and the country as a whole. And so that's why I focus a lot on infrastructure, on building roads, and hopefully new rail lines for our district yes. because that would involve digging, 
uh, blasting, mining, hauling, hauling dirt, the stuff, sort of stuff that people here already know how to do and have already done. So you can just take people, you know, if they just they got, you know, the, the mine shut down, you can take them the next day and say, hey, we got a project for you to work on. Bring your hard hat, bring your boots. That's it. And, and, we'll, and we'll pay you to do some good work. And it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. No, it doesn't. The other, the other way you you combine this with this concept with your idea of environmentalism, I thought was really terrific. You talk about a wilderness restoration agency, and I, from my perspective, I'm not sure it needs to be a standalone agency. But if you would explain to me why you think it does, that would be helpful. But explain to people what your idea is in general, because it's terrific. Yeah, so you know, we go around the country and we see all this uh, abandoned strip malls, abandoned shopping malls, uh, you know, big concrete and asphalt pads that are just sitting there empty, um, and and they just we just let them rot. You know, you never know who the landlord is, who's responsible for it, all these sorts of things. And so we're at the point in our country where we have just massive development, right? We have, I think, more than enough retail space, commercial space, especially in urban areas, that we don't need to go, you know, knocking down more pristine areas to build. So I'd like to sort of uh, sort of see the trend move the other way a little bit. So I say, let's have a federal agency. Let's give it $10, $20 billion a year, which in the scheme of things is very small. And it can simply go about um, placing bids on property that isn't being used. So the people who own it can get a little cash. And the public as a whole can see some of these eyesores, this ugly land being returned to some sort of natural state that can be enjoyed. Um, you know, any uh, urban developer or real estate agent will tell you that what increases property values the most is green space, trails, parks, trees, that sort of things. So, you know, all over the country, like I said, we have towns, uh, suburbs with abandoned shopping malls and, and areas that aren't being used. I say, let's Let's just turn those back into something uh, that people can enjoy. And this is something that will put people to work. It'll increase standards of living. And it really won't cost that much, especially in the, in the grand scheme of things. And uh, in areas like mine where uh, we've, we really value our, our, our wilderness, uh, I think that would just be a tremendous benefit to people. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was transportation and rail mm -hmm. specifically, which has been a huge issue for folks out in that area. I remember when they renovated the Bristol, Virginia railroad station mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and at Emory and Henry College, where I went to college, there's a railroad station. Right. And we have all this infrastructure that could be used for rail transportation, both cargo and uh, uh, and, and freight that's currently done on trucks and mm -hmm. people. Right. And it's it's just unused. Right. How would you work to bring rail travel back to the district? Well, I almost see it uh, in, in the most broading, broader sense as a national security issue, because we've been lucky that gas prices have been as low as they have been for a while. Uh, you know, the Saudis and the Iranians and Russians have been competing with each other to, to see who can put each other out of business. And that's been to our benefit because they've been pumping a lot. But if something happens, um, something happens like, in the Saudi... Like, say, the U.S. moving their embassy to Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or so if something happens in the Strait of Hormuz, suddenly our gas prices in rural America go to four or five bucks a gallon. That is going to hurt people really, really badly because a lot of people are barely hanging on as it is. They can't afford to necessarily just go out and buy a more fuel-efficient car. So they already live in rural areas. They're far away from schools, from their work, from their shopping centers. They have to commute. If that happens, this is going to cause enormous pain, enormous economic and, and potentially even social unrest. So just as a matter of national security, of redundancy, we need to have these systems in place that can, can still uh, – we can still have a functional economy if something like that happens to us because – it's not within our control. It's something it's sort of the one point of leverage that uh, foreign governments have over us. And, and we've done that um, because we've uh, insisted on just keeping to this fuel based system. So I say we need to have this in place, um, you know, as, as we know, in, in our economic realm, if the price of fuel goes up, the price of everything else goes up because everything we touch, eat, wear, consume uh, most of the time comes to us on a truck. And that is just a, a big risk if the price of diesel uh, is it would go way up. So uh, we need to just keep that in mind, in addition to all the other good reasons, environmental, uh, efficiency-wise, to 
to invest in these rail projects. But again, the big barrier is people always say, well, how are we going to pay for it, right? And so we actually have that answer. And I think if we if we uh, thread in the national security angle, we might have a better chance of actually getting these things started. Your health care plan is kind of reminiscent of Senator Sanders, but not exactly. Would you tell us the differences? Yeah. So for some reason, as part of several of the uh, HR um, 676 or Senator Sanders plan, uh, they have two things that I don't really like. One is they uh, either limit or ban private insurance plans from selling any plan that would be similar to what's offered under the Medicare plan. Now, I don't see a particularly good reason to do that. I don't want to, for political or economic reasons, limit anybody's options. Because what what was sort of the biggest political weakness of the Affordable Care Act was people saying, I don't want to be forced to buy something that I don't want. It was a big political issue. It was an issue in the Supreme Court. So I say, hey, let's avoid this issue entirely. Let's say you can buy whatever private insurance plan you want through your employer, on an exchange, whatever, and we're going to open up Medicare for people who want it as an option. Now, because I don't um, I, I, I have it funded for most people if they want to join the plan. They will pay a income-based premium right out of their pocket. It's not subsidized by their employer or anything like that. So for people who have, let's say, a great employer-based plan where they don't pay much out of pocket, they and can choose to keep on, it if they want. Hang on just one second. Go back because Senator Sanders' plan is funded by employers. And yeah, he so, imagines exactly. that that's not going to cost jobs or anything anywhere for anybody. Right. So he uh, his plan, I believe, has a... Uh, sort of basically expands the FICA tax uh, on on employers, so it, it brings it up by six percent or seven percent, uh, and keeps it at the same rate for employees. Which uh, that's sort of his supposed financing mechanism. I don't like that, um, but both because I don't like the idea of burdening anyone with uh, the healthcare costs, but especially not employers, because the, the, the really important thing when we need to do is get away from this connection between employment and healthcare. Yes. Your, where you work should not depend on your ability to get healthcare because it's it's inconvenient. It traps people in jobs. It prevents entrepreneurs from starting their own businesses or from getting out of a place they work and say, hey, I know how to do this better. I'd love to be able to start my new enterprise, but I, I just can't risk giving up the insurance. So I don't want any connection to be, uh, uh, at least in government policy, made uh, connecting employment and healthcare. And Senator Sanders' plan, unfortunately, does that. So that's why I, I have a little disagreement there. And what I never understood about that healthcare plan is, is Vermont's a very rural state. You'd think that someone coming from a rural state would understand the way that that kind of plan would negatively affect job growth in right. districts like Virginia's Ninth. Right, right. So I don't see um, a- any reason in particular to, certainly not to increase any uh, input costs or expenses on our employers, especially since, as you know, um, <laughs> yes, it's as very listeners hard for them of this to show know. Yeah, well, as, very, and, yeah. as listeners for the, to this show know, those taxes aren't paying for it anyway. Right. Taxes <laughs> never pay for anything ever. Right. They so can't. All that's doing is just placing a burden on employers, making them less right. competitive internationally. We don't need it. Right. So let's talk about uh, jobs. If you just tell us what your jobs plan is and and how you imagine bringing jobs to districts like Virginia's Ninth and other rural spaces. Yeah. So, you know, we've had politicians always, this is their number one issue, right? They always say, how are we going to bring jobs? How are we going to bring jobs? And they come up with these cockamamie schemes of tax credits and tax deductions and little loan programs and this and that. And it gets complicated and people don't understand it. And most of the time it doesn't really work. So I, my, my basic plan for job creation is pretty simple, okay? Let's just, instead of doing all these fancy programs, let's just stop taking out 7% of people's income, which is what the FICA tax does. So let's say uh, in an area like mine, let's say this is a rural area, let's just try an experiment. Let's say the IRS just stops collecting, stops automatically withholding those FICA taxes from everyone's paycheck. Do that for a year or two and see what happens. And I'll bet you that with that 7% of extra income that everyone gets, you'll see more job creation. You'll see more businesses opening up. You'll see people, um, at least from my point of view, importantly, 
being able to avoid these payday lending stores and other sort of desperate um, stopgap plans that people need to get from paycheck to paycheck. So let's let's just stop taking it out of people's paycheck and see how that works. And, and it's then spending we, we into there. the right place. You when you're talking about equity earlier, it's right. spending into the right place in the economy. Exactly. These people, everybody works. They deserve it. They work. Their parents work. Their whole family works. They deserve to keep the income that they get. And that, that's just a, a plain and simple way of of, uh, of going about it. And while I'm all for increasing the minimum wage as well, uh, we know that it's going to take time. It's political. Uh, you have to phase it in. The Eliminating the payroll tax does none of that. You just stop taking it out. People get a 7% bump in their income. And let's let's just see what happens with that. I think you're right because what first of all employers wouldn't object to that it doesn't not. it right. doesn't make any difference to them so exactly. unlike employers who are who would fight the the um, raise on the minimum wage they have no reason to fight exactly. getting rid of that right. fica and right. in fact it's less processing for them it's less paperwork for them so exactly. yay but yeah. it it puts money at the right place in the economy. It puts money at a place where it's actually going to be spent and circulate. That's mm -hmm. what the economy needs to see. Exactly. So the, the next speaking of things the economy needs to see is getting rid of student debt. And you talk about that So let right. me, on your website. So why don't you tell listeners about it? Yeah, so this is probably the most uh, innovative or controversial uh, plan that I have on my website. So... The farthest that progressives like Senator Warren or Senator Sanders will go is to say, well, let's take the student loans that people have and refinance those, and then we'll also try to get rid of, of tuition for people who are currently in college. Now, that's fine, but it really doesn't do much for people who already have a lot of student loan debt. So my perspective is, based on MMT and other things, is uh, you have lending the federal government lends for a reason and it spends for a reason. Now, the point of lending is to basically spread out income. So it allows someone to buy something today that, they, that they'll pay off over time. And the idea is that uh, whatever you buy will increase in value and you'll be able to basically make up for the interest expense. Okay? That is not – that has no applicability to education. Uh, it's unquantifiable. You never know exactly how people will benefit from it. So we never should have used lending to finance uh, higher education in the first place. It was bad policy. It was a mistake. It's ruined uh, or really holds back the quality of life for people. Let's just say, okay, we made a mistake. Let's undo that. Okay. And the, and the plan that I have is to say, uh, I'm combining basically some existing programs and, and sort of putting them together. So we already have securitization of loans. People know the famous mortgage-backed securities that caused the crisis. Uh, there's credit credit card-based securities, auto loan securities, and there is currently student loan debt securities. So I'm saying let's take this concept. Let's take tell the Department of Education, which holds these uh, almost 1.2 or 3 trillion in loans, and say, Department of Education, you're going to put these loans together. You're going to securitize them. It can be one. It can be 30. doesn't matter. You're going to do that. The Federal Reserve is going to buy them. So that means it comes off of the Department of Education's balance sheet. It goes onto the Fed's balance sheet. And what the Fed does and say, oh, whoops, we didn't mean to spend $1.2 These are really only worth $100 billion. So what is that? It's just a write-down. This happens in banking all the time. So the Fed writes down the value of the securities by 90%. Uh, you know, I don't say 100% because let's say you still have to pay for some of it. That's fine. Skin in the game, whatever. So those, uh, everyone who has those student loans will still have to pay off 10% of what the value was. And that will take them you know, a year or two. But they won't be burdened by this forever. But the reason why this is going to be so controversial is it reveals in, a, in an obvious way what the purpose of money and finance is, which is to make our lives better. So people think, oh, this is cheating. This is somehow unfair. Well, the exact opposite is true, right? That the idea that we use financing for education is actually what's unfair. So uh, as, the, as the central bank of the United States, as we know, the Fed sits on top of the uh, financial pyramid, so to speak. There is no consequence if the Fed decides to write down these assets by 90 percent. Uh, if, if they get to have a, uh, what's called a negative capitalization or net worth, so what? It has well, absolutely no consequence for their operations. It is exactly the same as quantitative easing. 
Uh, yes, it, it's the same except for I sort of add the deliberate write-down provision. With yes, QE, right. the Fed sort of said, oh, you know, we'll buy these at face value even though we sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, know that they're not really worth that much. Right. But yes, so you're just saying it out loud. But yes, it's quantitative Correct. easing yeah. all over right. again. Exactly. And none of us um, paid a dime for quantitative easing. Right, right. In other it words, it just it right. happened transparently to us. It was an accounting function, and that's exactly. all. Right. And that's what this would be. It would strictly be an accounting function, but it would turn loose an enormous amount of energy back into the economy, which, in, right. in, again, in the right places. Yeah, so, and, and all these student loan payments are is just it's another form of a tax on, on the youngest people who have the least amount of income. Uh, it's really just obscene. Yeah, all the way around. Will, I think you had a question. I do. So one of the uh, one of the things that, we talk about in rural spaces in Appalachia and the rest of the South is we talk far too much about our past. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anywhere near enough about our future. And for a lot of folks growing up and living in Appalachia, there's this sort of bleakness right. that a lot of us start feeling about the future and that a lot of the people I know out there still feel about the future. Uh, it's one of the things, it's one of the reasons I left. It's one of the reasons that a lot of other people my age who fall in love with these spaces leave mm -hmm. is because there's not a lot of hope. Right. But you've argued that with the right policies and the right decisions, Appalachia and spaces like it have a really bright future. So yeah. what I'd like to ask you is where do you imagine Appalachia being 10, 20, 50 years down the road, what can Appalachia be? Yeah, so in my mind, I sort of have to not to go back into into history again, but I have have this Jeffersonian sort of vision of what Appalachia can be in the future. Uh, it will be completely connected to the internet, to the global economy, but it will still be rural. It will still be community based. People will have big parcels of land that they can enjoy. They can farm, hunt, fish, whatever they want. Uh, I don't see it as ever becoming some big, you know, urban or dense area. And I don't think that's what anybody really wants either. But we can still have prosperity. We can have, uh, we can rebuild our downtowns and have sort of a, a community space where there's a lot of retail and a lot of uh, interaction going on at the same time as people uh, have their, their own homes and properties that are, are separated. So that's sort of my economic uh, qual uh, quantitative uh, view. Now, as far as uh, social uh, society goes, uh, the issue that I, I often tell my fellow Democrats is, yes, these folks might have voted for Trump. They, they say that they're conservative, but we still have to approach them with just an open mind, be, be, uh, approach them as, as the fellow humans that they are. And so for a lot of people, they're, uh, they're very much, I think, afraid of the future of, of the country and how the world has become so big and so connected. And they don't know what their role in the future of this country will be. And that is very, very scary for, for grandparents, for parents, and for children, uh, kids my age and younger, because they don't know where they're going to end up. And that doesn't need to be the case. We can have politicians that say, hey, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to help you. Uh, I'm going to help you and your community adjust to the realities of the modern world because I don't want to see you. I don't want to see this fear uh, uh, continuing because it's just bad for everybody. Now, unfortunately, you know, right wing politicians take advantage of this and they say, hey, you know, look what look how the world is going. This is the world's going to hell because we have gay marriage and, and things like that. And uh, it, unfortunately, it works, but it doesn't have to work. If we approach it by saying, you know, you're going to be happy, you're going to have kids, you're going to be successful in the 21st century. And I can I can help ensure that as your representative in Washington. With that, we want to thank Justin for joining us today. Justin, that was really fabulous, and I really appreciate your detailed explanations. And as this campaign goes along, we would love to have you back if you want to come back and say a little bit more and tell us a little bit more about what it's like to uh, to run and to go through this process. We'd love to hear about that. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. And that's all for us here at Hopping Mad today. We want to thank Justin Sancho-Pietro for an incredible interview and we will be back next week. Will and I send out our thanks to Netroots Radio, our show's fabulous editor, Michelle LaShore, and especially to you, our listeners, for joining us today. 
it's so great to have Will back, and I just have to interject that into this because it's hard. It's always tough sledding for me without him. You can find Aww. the broadcast. <laughs> you can find the broadcast version of Hopping Mad on Netroots Radio at 8 a.m. on Mondays. The full podcast version of our show is free and usually includes an extended interview, which we call Extra Mad. The podcast can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and most other internet podcast apps. Our website is I'mHoppingMad.com, where you can listen. to to download or comment upon the show there and right now you can get your Arliss and Thurston Owl the third deficit owl ornaments there they are still available on Hopping Now there are only a couple of left so if you want uh, your very own Arliss ornament you have to go now Arliss is wearing a McLeod family tartan scarf she's very very cute uh, anyway, so our website is I'm Hopping Mad, and you can listen to or download or comment upon the show there. We love to receive your comments, and we get really interesting ones and things that we really think about. You can find Will on Twitter at WillMcLeod99, and I'm there, obviously, at Arliss Bunny. The show is at I'm Hopping Mad. Hopping Mad is the place on Progressive Radio for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics, economics, and of course, carrots. Until next week, cheers. Next up is K-Girl in the Morning here on Netroots Radio.